When it comes to haunting stories and terrifying true crime, little is more horrific than axe murders. There's a brutality to it that's so awful, it's hard to fathom why or how someone could hurt another human being in such a way. Could a crime of passion cause such rage, even on innocent bystanders? In December of 1909, Savannah met evil in broad daylight. This is their story. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. Darkness has a way of following you, seeping into every part of your life. Even when you try to leave it behind, the black cloud somehow finds you. Unfortunately, it also discovers those around you, making everyone a victim. The cool breeze of the December air blew through the crack of my window. The first few days of the separation had been more like bliss than anything else. I was surprised how calm I felt, how peaceful it was to just be in a home without him there. Miss Gribble and her daughter had been most welcoming, offering me anything that I could have possibly needed. Miss Gribble was a fantastic cook, too. I'd been more well-fed there than the years previous. With my sewing machine on the table and my work done for the day, I cleaned up my area and desk, gently folded the project up I was working on, and decided to head down for some tea. As I walked down the stairs, I heard someone in the back of the house. I slowly moved through the hallway toward Mrs. Gribble's room, and I saw her sitting in her easy chair, her gray hair tucked into a bun. She must have been reading something because she had her glasses on, and was looking down. Before I could tell for sure, though, a knock came at the door. Miss Gribble's daughter came in from the adjoining room and answered it. That's when I saw him. The devil, the dark shadow that would never let me go, standing in the doorway. I screamed, just a little. And her daughter Carrie looked over her shoulder at me, startled. He lifted the axe and swung it, hitting her in the head. The horrific scene, the splatter of blood on the walls and ceiling, jolted me frozen. My feet felt as heavy as lead. Mrs. Gribble, a little hard of hearing, mustn't have heard because she didn't move. I tried to scream again, but my voice left me. You thought you could outrun me, he asked, and then he swung. I couldn't be sure how many times because all the world went blank. The sharp pain felt more intense than anything I've ever felt, but only for a moment, and then it was gone. 
The next thing I remember was waking up at the hospital. There were so many visitors, so many questions, but all I could see was his face. The face that haunted me for so many years, the cloud, the darkness, all the evil in the world. That face. They told me what had happened to Mrs. Gribble and her daughter, and I knew it was my fault because I had brought this to them. I had brought evil to their doorstep, and they unknowingly had let it in. More than victims, they were innocent. That was the hardest thing for me to deal with. Those few days felt like torture, like I'd already arrived in hell. The pain, the fever, the relentless questioning. I was asked to identify my killer. How many victims have that chance? I did, but evil is so much bigger and deeper than a person. It wasn't only one person. That same evil had skipped from host to host for centuries. It's hard to cast blame for something supernatural on one individual. For each of us can be so easily possessed by evil if the circumstances are right. My deepest regret, now on the other side, is perhaps that I stole a life myself. The last three days of mine were so fuzzy that I can't be sure what I said, who I pointed my finger at, but I will tell you. The man who stood in the doorway, the one who swung the axe, who killed the three of us, I knew him. I suspect in some ways, we all do. On December 10th of 1909, a horrific triple murder occurred at 401 West Perry Street in Savannah, Georgia. Three women's lives were taken in broad daylight in the most gruesome way. Death by axe. That day, Eliza Gribble and her daughter Carrie were found in their home. Another woman by the name of Maggie Hunter was found nearly gone, but survived just long enough to identify the killer. A newspaper article about the horrific axe murders of the Gribble House read, quote, On the afternoon of December 10th, the attention of a passing patrolman was attracted to the sound of the house by the hearing moans from within. A ghastly spectacle met the officer's eyes when he forced an entrance to the house, sprawled hideously about the halls and rooms of their home, Miss Eliza Gribble, aged 70 years, and her daughter, Miss Olander, were found dead, while nearby lay Mrs. Hunter, dying with her skull beat in. A bloody axe on the floor showed how the women had come to their deaths. The murders were most brutal. 
Eliza Gribble was found in the back bedroom with her skull beaten. Eliza was 70 years old at the time, and she was originally from Cornwall, England, but had settled with her late husband, Mr. R. Gribble, in Savannah before the Civil War. She rented the house with her daughter only a short time before the murders occurred. Eliza must have been having an ordinary evening because she was found in her chair in the back bedroom reading a newspaper with her reading glasses at her feet. We can't be sure, but it's believed that she received one or two blows to the back of the head. Her daughter, Carrie Olander, was only 36 years old at the time. She was separated from her husband, Andrew Olander. Her husband was living in Memphis and Carrie had come home to live with her mother during the separation. She was partially deaf. It's believed that she was the first person attacked on that fateful evening. In addition to having her throat cut, she was also beaten to death and she was raped. Maggie Hunter was 34 at the time of her death. She had just rented a room and moved into the Gribble house. J.C. Hunter, whom she'd been married to and was estranged from, was 30 years her senior. Hunter had brought a sewing machine over to Maggie the day before because Maggie was planning to become a seamstress in order to make ends meet. Maggie was found near the front door of the home with her throat slit and her head beaten. The crime was reported early enough in the day that it was put into the evening paper. The Savannah Evening Press reported the murders, and Savannians were outraged. The people were determined to find the murder or murderers. An awful riot ensued, and police initially believed the crime to have been committed by an African-American man or possibly more than one. It was reported that more than 150 African-American men were arrested and sat in jail, awaiting an investigation. Mobs of men stormed the jail outraged. The prisoners feared for their lives. Willie Walls, who was believed to be Maggie Hunter's boyfriend, was one of the men suspected of having something to do with the murders because he had tried to come to visit Maggie Hunter on the day the murders occurred. But the case against him was very weak. The logical suspect was J.C. Hunter, the husband of Maggie Hunter. He had served in the American Civil War and he had been arrested twice prior, once for stealing a horse and the other for bigamy. His real name was David Taylor, but in an effort to distance himself from his crimes, he changed it. He often referred to Maggie as his daughter since she was so much younger than him. While she was in the hospital, Maggie told Reverend Wilder, a local minister, the name of the person who had tried to kill her and had killed Mrs. Gribble and Carrie Olander. Shortly thereafter, J.C. Hunter was arrested. The authorities released him, though, after his work claimed that he had been there that afternoon, the same time that authorities believed that the women were murdered. But again, while in the hospital, Maggie had said that Hunter had slapped her. So he was arrested once more, but this time, authorities searched his home. 
During the search, bloody rags and clothes were found, and that nearly cemented his fate. Also, a neighbor's servant girl had claimed to see him leaning against an oak tree in front of the Gribble house around the time of the murders. Hunter then claimed he had, in fact, visited Maggie the morning of the murders to see how she was liking the sewing machine. He'd said that Maggie had told him that she'd, quote, leave him alone if he were to buy her one, and so that is why he did so. But according to witnesses, Maggie hadn't met with Hunter that morning. She'd visited her sister and then went to three other houses, trying to sell some cloth for money to buy coal for a fire so she could work late. Another witness, however, claimed to, to have seen Maggie on Perry Street around 1.45 p.m., and they'd said she'd appeared drunk. If this is true, it's possible that Maggie arrived home after the two other women had been killed, with the killer still inside. Police theorized that Maggie returned home, went straight upstairs to begin working, and before getting started good, she heard a noise. And when she went down to investigate, she ran into the murderer and was struck. Willie Walls and J.C. Hunter were both brought to see Maggie's corpse in her coffin. The thinking for authorities was that no man could see the body of his victim and not confess. At the time, neither man knew that Maggie had died. Shocked, Hunter began to sob, and he was asked if he'd like to kiss his wife, and he said he would. Bingham Bryan, a yardman for the house, was also a suspect. He was in custody with the thinking that he had broken into the Gribble house to rob the women. It was rumored that Mrs. Gribble had a trunk filled with stocks and other valuables. Brian was brought into the house where he was shown a reconstructed scene of the murders. Three wax figures were splayed on the floor, covered in animal's blood, wearing similar dress to the three women. The windows had been covered to make the house as dark as possible, and coffins were placed next to the bodies. When Brian was brought into the room, he was shown the horrific scene, but didn't react at all. Then a man who was hired to be a ghost tried to evoke a reaction out of Brian, but to no avail. The man who was playing the ghost then told the officers that this man didn't commit the crime. Brian was declared insane for having no reaction at all. Perhaps the most bizarre and eerie part of the story came when witnesses claimed that Maggie had predicted her own death. From the morning news of December 16, 1909. Mr. Flatman was Mr. Hunter's insurance man and he ran into Maggie the morning of the murders. She called for him to stop and said she wanted to say something to him. He told her that if, if she would give him 60 cents by Saturday night that the insurance would be alright again and she said that by 5 o'clock the bloody work would be done. He said that he asked her if she was going to kill herself, and she said no, and that he would be surprised and would see for himself this afternoon. He said that she seemed sober at the time, but did feel a little nervous.
On February 23rd of 1910, a grand jury indicted Hunter Walls and John Coker, another suspect. All of the men denied having any involvement in the crime. Coker was acquitted, Walls never went to trial, and on August 17th of 1910, Hunter was convicted and sentenced to death by hanging. But on December 22nd, 1911, the day before his execution, Hunter asked to be baptized. During the process, he was asked, Mr. Hunter, if the governor shall let you die tomorrow, do you feel satisfied to go before God, innocent? To which he replied, I do, because I'm an innocent man. The reverend, the same one who Maggie had given the name of her attacker to, then exclaimed that the governor had commuted his sentence. You see, despite people assuming that Reverend Wilder had told the police it was Hunter, the Reverend believed in Hunter's innocence. Either Maggie had given him a different name, or he believed that she'd said his name in delirium. No one knows. Hunter's sentence was reduced to life in prison. On October 27th of 1923, Governor Clifford Walker granted Hunter a pardon, and he was released. The story gets even stranger still, though. In 1917, a man by the name of J.B. Gavin approached a National Guard member from Savannah, who was serving on the U.S.-Mexico border, and claimed that he had been the one to kill the three women, him and an accomplice. He went into great detail about the house and what they'd stolen, but his confession was believed to have been that of an insane man and was never taken seriously. The Gribble House was torn down in 1944 along with the surrounding buildings. A 15,000 square foot warehouse stands where the Gribble House once was and is located at 234 Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. In 1975, Elizabeth White, a woman who'd grown up on West State Street before World War I, claimed that the house had been notoriously haunted. She remembered stories that her grandmother and mother told her of blood appearing on the walls. She'd said, quote, people who lived there would swear they saw it. Later, the house became a boarding house and the red stains were again seen on the walls of the rooms where the murders happened. I had an uncle who told me this." End quote. The warehouse was featured on May 17th of 2014 in an episode of Ghost Adventures, and many ghost tours have taken place at that location as well. Several years ago, my family and I were in Savannah visiting before we moved here, and we went on a tour that included a ghost investigation of that warehouse where the Gribble House once stood. We were provided with some ghost hunting tools and were let out in the complete darkness into this massive warehouse, sent to explore. I will say there was a little bit of a spooky vibe there, but I can't be sure if that's because of knowing about the horrible event that took place there, or because the building was so dark, or if there actually was something lurking in the shadows hoping to make itself known. There's no denying that most locals believe the area where the Gribble House once stood 
is in fact haunted though. Did one of the suspects or hunter kill the women? Or did the stranger who confessed to the guardsman actually do it? The mystery remains unsolved. Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles, with music by Kevin McLeod and Epidemic Sound. If you'd like to connect with the show, be sure to check out our website, fabledcollective.com, or check us out on social media at Fabled Collective. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>